Go ahead and turn in your Bible, if you got one, to Matthew chapter 20. We're studying through a series here at the start of the year called First Things First, where the hope is that we're finding places where Jesus, in, particularly in the Gospel of Matthew, rearranges the priorities of his disciples, and he tells them, this comes first, other stuff comes second. Do this, then do that, or do this above all the other things. And so we're hoping that we'll be able to, by God's grace, come to the end of this year, look back to where we began and say that we were intentionally living in the direction of the priorities that Jesus has laid out for his disciples. And so we're looking at a number of these. And in the next one for us is Matthew uh, chapter 20. I'm going to start reading. This is such a key passage for understanding the shape of the kingdom of God and what it means to follow Jesus. So I'm going to start reading if you're in Matthew 20, beginning in verse 17. While going up to Jerusalem, Jesus took the 12 disciples aside privately and said to them on the way, see, we are going up to Jerusalem. The Son of Man will be handed over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death. They will hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked, flogged, and crucified, and on the third day, he will be raised. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons approached him with her sons. She knelt down to ask him for something. What do you want? He asked her. Promise, she said to him, that these two sons of mine may sit, one on your right and the other on your left, in your kingdom. Jesus answered, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? Here come the boys, right? We're able, they said to him. He told them, you will indeed drink my cup, but to sit at my right hand and left is not mine to give. Instead, it is for those for whom it has been prepared by my father. When the ten disciples heard this, they became indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them over and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those in high positions act as tyrants over them. It must not be like that among you. On the contrary, and here's the priority, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Those words of purpose that Jesus utters, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. The Son of Man did not come to gather servants, but to serve, to serve the world, to serve his people, to serve and save sinners, right? Right away, we got a problem. If that's the central statement of this text, we got a problem, and we might as well own up to it right out of the gate, and that is, we don't like serving, but we do like being served. We're we're all about that, but we're we're not hugely into, we're not so big on serving. A a psychiatrist named Milton Rokic um, wrote a, a case study survey, a very interesting book back in 1964, psychiatric case study entitled The Three Christs of Ypsilanti. And it was there in Ypsilanti, Michigan, where this whole survey was conducted. He came upon three men who all believed themselves to be Jesus Christ. And so what he did was he, you know, he tried to counsel and give them uh, treatment of various kinds independently, and he was frustrated, and he wasn't getting anywhere. And so he thought, let's put them all in the same room and maybe they'll work it out and realize there can only be one Jesus, so we can't all be him. Maybe, maybe that's at least a start. 
right? And so he saw some, some progress, but no real lasting or significant change uh, in the early days of this um, time of, of trying to treat these, these men. There was a, a humorous, rather humorous exchange. They were all in the room together. This was one of their first times of, of talking together. One of them announced, so it's all of them in Rokich together in the same room. One of them announced, I am Jesus Christ. I am the Savior of the world. And Rokich said, who told you that? And the man answered, God told me. And one of the others said, I told you nothing of the kind. <laughs> the, uh, the fascinating thing is what happened later. Almost 20 years later, in a re-release of that same book, Rokich himself in 1981 wrote an afterword of that edition. And in the afterword, he laments his own attempts, his desperate really beyond the bounds of good practice, attempts to cure these men. And he said he owned up to the fact that he himself had what he called a God complex. And he even casts himself in the afterward as the fourth delusional Christ. And he wrote these words. He says, while I had failed to cure the three Christs of their delusions, they had succeeded in curing me of mine of my godlike delusion that I could change them by omnipotently arranging and rearranging their daily lives. God complex, right? It's a, it's a thing. In Matthew 20, what you see is a lot of pushing and shoving. If there were an audio track, you would hear people pushing and shoving all throughout this text, pushing their way to the front of the line, pushing other people behind them, jockeying for position, jockeying for power. The only one in Matthew 20 without a God complex is Jesus, <laughs> is God. He's the only one who doesn't sound like the others. And that's why the first movement in this passage feels so much like confrontation. That's why we have it in your notes. Act one, confrontation. Jesus is leading the disciples. So you back out and look at the big picture. What's happening here in Matthew 20, right? Jesus is leading his disciples to Jerusalem. This is the last time. He's going to die in Jerusalem, right? His public ministry is basically over at this point. He's going to heal one more person, two more people at the end of this chapter down in verse 34. Then there's no more healing in the ministry of Jesus until after the resurrection, right? And in these remaining, some say six months of Jesus' life prior to his crucifixion, he spends every waking hour with his disciples, and he's preparing them for what happens next through private instruction. He's telling them, this is what matters. This is what you live your life toward. I'm handing the baton to you soon, right? In this world, you will have tribulation. He's saying all these kinds of things. He's getting them ready for his departure. But, but, but in the midst of these things that he's talking about, the kingdom of God, the message isn't getting through. It's just bouncing off every which way. They're not getting it, right? You may have in your Bible right there above verse 17, there might be a heading in your copy of God's word that indicates that this is the third time Jesus has predicted his own death in a short period of time, right? So if you just go back and track those times where Jesus talks about his own suffering and death, they push back every time, right? They just don't see greatness and suffering happening in the same person. That's not what Messiahs do. They don't die. They don't get crucified. They don't suffer. That's why the first time he predicts his suffering in Matthew 16, 22, what does Peter do? Rebukes him. It's not going to happen. Not on my watch, right? That's Peter. First time he, Jesus talks about suffering, Peter rebukes him. Second time he predicts his suffering, it says that they were deeply distressed. 
Mark's gospel complements Matthew's gospel. Mark says they weren't just deeply distressed, they were arguing about who's the greatest. Right after Jesus said, I'm about to die, they're arguing about who's the greatest, right? The message clearly is not getting through. And then this is the third one. And the third time that Jesus predicts his death, we find James and John and their mom angling for prominent seats in the new administration. That's basically what's happening, right? They're thinking, we're marching to Jerusalem. This is where he sets up headquarters and rules to the end of the world. Let's get some seats for my boys right the right and the left, right? She's, she's imagining that, right? Here's the point. It's in your notes. God's kingdom is unnatural to us. It contradicts our expectations at every turn. It, 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 it's, as the earlier church fathers said, that the, the kingdom of God is contramundum. It's a Latin phrase meaning it's against the world. It's against the ways and policies of everything that we see in the kingdoms of this world. So Jesus calls them in close after he sees they're still not getting it. And what does he say? He says, guys, listen, my kingdom isn't like Rome. Rome wears its power on its sleeve. That's not our way. It's not going to be our way. My kingdom is we, we suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to serve. That's the shape of my kingdom. And, and again, this is just not computing. If we want to give these guys some grace, in all fairness, if they had an Old Testament, and they did, they were familiar with the Old Testament, they had probably read passages in which this title, the Son of Man, Jesus says, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. They said, wait, we've heard about the Son of Man. Where, where did we hear about that? Daniel 7. Yeah, Daniel 7 is basically the, the Son of Man comes on the scene. He comes in the clouds of heaven. He's given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that all peoples on earth, Daniel prophesied, would serve him. That's the only thing they know about the Son of Man is he comes and he beckons servants. He comes and everybody bows, right? They, they can't understand this one who would come who says he's the Son of Man and he serves. Just doesn't make any sense, right? Again, that, what they think is happening when they get to Jerusalem, he sets up headquarters, he kicks Rome in the teeth, and we rule to the end of the world, right? They, they didn't know the shape of the real calendar of redemption, what was happening this time and what would happen when Jesus returns. You know, something else that they, they didn't know is that later in the book of Revelation, John would talk about the coming of the Son of Man, and, and there the title Son of Man, again, would be directly associated, directly tied to global domination. Revelation 1, the Son of Man has feet like bronze, eyes like fire, a voice like mighty waters. He's dressed like royalty. He's got a sword, and he's about to use it, right? And, and his face, John said, shines like the sun at full strength. And John said, when I saw him, who is him? The Son of Man. I fell at his feet like I was dead. That's what, that's what you do if you're a son of man. You come and you dominate. So the disciples, as they're marching to Jerusalem, they can see purpose in Jesus' eyes. He set his face like flint. He is striding toward his mission, and they say, this is it. They're feeling it. This is our time. They're ready for Jesus kind of, it's sort of like, you've done the meek and lowly bit, and that's been great, but it's time for shock and awe, right? Let's do that. As we go into Jerusalem, let's shed meek and lowly, let's bring shock and awe. Get it tattooed on each arm, shock, awe. Let's, let's do that as we go to Jerusalem, right? But Jesus keeps talking about serving and suffering 
and dying and giving up his life. Nobody takes it from me. I'm giving it up willingly. It's blowing their minds. The kingdom of God is unnatural to us. Right? The point is, Jesus keeps talking about suffering and death, and everybody else can't stop talking about power and greatness and supremacy and prominence. King, God's kingdom is unnatural to us. Next point, God's word shines light on our God complex. God's word shines light on our God complex. You ever stop to realize this is just such a sinking feeling for me again this week? I'm sort of welcoming you to the party I've been at all week long, right? This sinking feeling of stopping and realizing selfishness comes so easily in my life. There's nothing I do as thoughtlessly, as effortlessly, as assert my own preferences, right? Interpret life by how, how everything's orbiting around me. It's, it comes so naturally, it's instinctive, right? We have to fight against that. So how, how do we discern this God complex that, that, that life is becoming all about me? Ever stop to ask that question? How do we discern that we're we're having a God complex. Well, James tells us later in the New Testament, James tells us, track your angry responses. That'll tell you where your God complex is growing. James says, why do you fight and quarrel? And he's about to answer the question. We're not going to like what he says. He says, you fight and quarrel because you want something you're not getting, and so you squeeze it out of other people. That's why you're warring and complaining and arguing. You're not getting what you crave. You want something so bad, you're pulling it out of people. You're twisting them in the wind in order to get what you want. In other words, we're happy as long as life and people are orbiting around my happiness and comfort, right? In that sense, you almost might say, well, my anger toward whoever it was that I just had an outburst, right? My, uh, my anger really isn't personal, right? You just got out of orbit, Right, you get back into orbit, everything's good again. James is, is really, he's just walked into the, the living room, he's just walked into the boardroom, he's just walked into the schoolyard, and he's saying, this is what's up, this is what motivates us, this is how this works in our hearts. We want to be God. We want to be praised. We want to be worshipped, right? J James is, is meddling with our view of greatness. You want to see your, your God complex, watch, watch where you become angry. Here's another one. This is tough to hear. Watch what happens. You want to see your God complex. Watch what happens when hardship comes into your life. When suffering knocks at the door. Right? I just finished reading a book on prayer by a friend who's a pastor in Atlanta. Um, and he gets, he gets real about how dark it got when suffering came in his life, and a number of things just started to fall apart in his world, and the last latch that was thrown was his 32-year-old brother died unexpectedly, and it was just the final stroke. And, and I, I find it so encouraging when writers throw away the facade and say, let me bring you into the darkness, and here's what he wrote. My filter vanished as my tongue was unhinged in prayer. I was ashamed at the words coming out of my mouth. I called God a liar. He seemed cruel and uncaring. I felt disdain, anger, hatred, and I told him. I couldn't help but tell him. Pain felt like a truth serum that forced me to confess all my unworthy thoughts, and he took it. 
He corrected my negative view, not with words of rebuke, but words of consolation. I wasn't met with the cold shoulder I deserved, but with open arms. Right? Hardship has a way of, of really showing us our core belief about God, our functional theology, not the one that we present right, when we're asked a, a question about the Bible, but the functional one that's at the core, the one we really believe, not our tidy answers, but our deep down God thoughts come out when we suffer. Basically, what happens is suffering comes and our angry reaction says, God, you had one job. One job. Give me a happy, peaceful life. And you failed epically in 2018. That's what our functional theology can say, right? And God graciously allows us to see and he's working in us. I love what, what John was talking about. He, he, he allows us to see this root issue that we have a God complex. This is, in your notes, this is why real servanthood feels like dying. Real servanthood, giving our life away for others, stepping out of our own house of mirrors and serving others. In Christ's name, it feels like death to us. C.S. Lewis's story, maybe many of you have read The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. And you meet a boy named Eustace, and uh, Eustace is the epitome of selfishness, and uh, he's just spoiled. And he falls asleep um, with this treasure, and when he wakes up, he's no longer a boy. It's fantasy fiction, obviously, for those of you who might not know. It's fantasy fiction. He wakes up, and he's not a boy anymore. He's a dragon. And he's got these thick scales, but he had this golden bracelet on, and now the bracelet's too small, so it's ripping into his, his dragon flesh, and he's just absolutely crying out, in agony, and then Aslan, the Christ figure in the Chronicles of Narnia, Aslan shows up on the scene and he brings Eustace, the dragon, to a well. And Eustace looks at the well and he says, if I could just get in that water, it would, it would heal my wounds and it would relieve the pain. And Aslan says, you can't just get into the water, you have to undress first. You can't go into the water with the scales, it won't be able to to heal you unless you undress, unless the scales, the hard exterior is removed. And then Eustace starts to desperately tear, use his claws to tear the scales away, and it's not working. There's just more scales underneath, and he's just tearing everything that he can tear. And, and Aslan says, I have to undress you. And then Lewis writes this, the first, the very first tear he made was so deep that I thought it had gone right into my heart. And when he began pulling the skin off, it hurt worse than anything I've ever felt. The only thing that made me able to bear it was just the pleasure of feeling the stuff peel off. And then Aslan finishes, and then he washes him in the water of the well, and then Eustace becomes a boy again, and then Aslan dresses him in new clothes. It's a picture of the sanctifying grace of God. So that whole moment is about, the point is, we don't transform ourselves. Right? God means, just talk about 2019. Here we're at the beginning of 2019. Christian friend, God means to do deeply transformative work in your life this year. And it won't always be comfortable for us. It might be painful, but he's healing us. He's restoring, he's sanctifying, he's cleaning 
us, right? This is the point in your notes. God intervenes to keep me from choosing my greatness over true greatness. He doesn't just sit by and idly watch. Christians give ourselves and kick against the goads. He, he jumps into our lives. He intervenes to keep me from choosing my greatness over true greatness. So confrontation is, is the first thing we see. Second thing is imitation. Imitation. You see there in verse 27. Whoever wants to be first among you must be your slave just as. There's the imitation language. Must first be your slave just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. This is in your notes, the next point. We follow one who served and suffered. That's the path he's laid out for us. If we're following Jesus, remember where he went. He went to service. He went into servanthood. He lived a life of a servant. You look here in this text. Mother of of the Zebedee sons isn't having it. That's not what she wants for their future, right? She comes helicoptering in in verse 20. She is a take charge gal, right? Maybe like a eight wing nine or a three wing two on the Enneagram profile, which I don't know anything about. But I, uh, I texted Matt Powell yesterday and just asked him, man, you know Enneagram, what is this lady in verse 20? He's like, she's a total eight wing nine or a three wing two. I'm like, I trust you, right? She's taking charge. She is carving a space in the world for her sons to climb the ladder, right? She, Jesus is the rising star. He deserves two great advisors on either side. Jesus, James, and John, or Jesus, John, and James, doesn't matter. She's like, you can decide which one goes on the left and the right. That's up to you, right? Just put them, right? It has a great ring to it. Jesus, James, John, right? Three J's. That's just it's the way she's thinking, right? She says, grant me this request. Look what Jesus says in verse 22. You don't know what you're asking. She doesn't get it. Are you able? And now he looks at the sons. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? They're... they're you can almost picture them there, tails wagging. We're able. Give us the cup. Is it the cup, right? They, they think greatness is in the cup. They think power and prominence is in the cup. They have no idea what's in that cup. That's the irony. There's irony dripping all over this text. The conversation basically goes like this. Give my sons prominence. Jesus says, you think you can drink the cup? Yes, we want the cup. You'll get the cup. Others' disciples so they chime in, oh, he's going to get the cup, right? Everybody's clueless, right? Jesus is basically saying, listen, time out. You don't want this cup. You're going to drink this cup, but listen, clearly you don't understand. This cup is martyrdom. Let's just clarify, this cup is not fun. This cup, no pleasant. This cup, this cup is you dying, and you will drink it, but you don't know what you're asking for. We, we know this call to servanthood. It doesn't only have to do with martyrdom. Right? When Jesus told his disciples, if you want to come after me, take up your cross and follow me. Deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. That wasn't Jesus promising every Christian is going to lose their life for the sake of the gospel. Every Christian is going to die of martyrdom. 
It has to do with living a life of self-sacrificing love. That's going to be your path. That's what he means. You're gonna, it's going to feel like death. Living a life of self-sacrificing love is going to feel like a death because it's so entwined. We're so entwined. We're so easily self-absorbed. So it's not just the big death, the martyrdom deaths that we see in the New Testament. You think about the thousand little daily deaths that service to others involves in the life of the ordinary Christian. You think about the Christian mom, right? When you became pregnant, you said goodbye to several things. Sleep being first among them, right? Sleep is such a gift from God. It was so wonderful, the sleep that you enjoyed in previous days. Say goodbye to sleep for the next who knows how long, right? That you're saying goodbye, a life of sacrifice, a life of serving. Not only that, you, you, said, you said goodbye to some of your favorite music. Now you're going to be on road trips and you're going to listen to songs that drive you crazy. And, and that's when they're young, the songs drive you crazy, little kid songs, right? And then they get older, teenage years, and the songs drive you crazy in a whole different kind of way, right? Just dizzyingly repetitive Big bass thumping beats, right? All I need is you. You know, it's like all over and over. And just, it says, all I need is you. All through the song, it just keeps, it's like, could you just stop? Like, just sing the song. Get, get that little thing off. That's so annoying. That's what you said welcome to the moment you said yes to parenting, right? Also, you're going to be informed. Here's what, you said yes to this when you decided to parent. You're going to be informed. You're not as funny as you think you are. Here's another thing. All your kids' friends will be set up as the, the pillars of wisdom, right? There's just this little wisdom-saturated community of 9-year-olds or 15-year-olds or 18-year-olds, and they hold the keys to all relevant knowledge in the world, right? We could repeat similar exercises of little deaths, right? The little things that you said yes to when you decided to lead a small group, Right, that you, you basically decided there's going to come a day, it's inevitable, there's going to come a day where you, you spend a lot of time preparing and praying and thinking through an intentional, crafted time for discussion and studying the word and nobody's going to show up. You just said yes to that, right? The same thing with elders, we're about to get into elder selection time of the year. You say yes to eldership, you're saying yes to little mini deaths all year long. Hope that doesn't sound like a disincentive. I hope you still sign up, right? I hope you still want to be an elder. It's a noble call. Thousand deaths. Ministry volunteers, missionaries. I heard a missionary some years back. This was new for me. I hadn't really considered this because I've never lived in another culture, never tried to learn another language by immersion, by just diving in. And he was sharing a story, sharing a testimony. And he said, um, he said, there, there was a surprising experience of humiliation when I went to another part of the world and tried to learn a language. And he said, after a few years, I still could only talk like probably the equivalent of a four-year-old in that culture. And he said, what I wanted to say to people, if I could only speak the language well enough, is I wanted to say, if you could come back with me to the culture where I grew up, I'm very impressive. Like, 
And seriously, you won't believe this, but I'm super funny. I have a great personality. I can talk about all kinds of, I can have intelligent discussion around a whole range of issues. That's what I'm like. Like, you've never seen that. But he said, you realize, the moment you try to stumble forward in saying that, you sound to them like a four-year-old. He said, it's so humiliating. Look, look, servanthood is the new greatness in the kingdom of God. And it's the new greatness because we serve a God who loves humility. He is inclined to humility. He opposes pride and he he is a friend of the humble. He doesn't just love humility. He is humble. God is humble. Think of that. Even in heaven, Jesus didn't just put that on here on earth. Even in heaven, Jesus said, I'm going to serve you. I'm going to sit you down. He says in Luke chapter 12, verse 37, Blessed will be the servants that the master finds alert when he comes. That's at Jesus' return. Truly I tell you, this master will get ready, will have them recline at the table, and then come and serve them. Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, son of man in all his glory, fire in his eyes saying, hey, sit down, I'm going to go get some food. You sit there, I'm getting the food. And he comes and serves them. How do, you know that, how do you know that someone's been around Jesus, learning from Jesus, said, hey, come and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. How do you know you've been around Jesus? Meekness starts to grow. Lowliness of heart starts to grow. Learning to serve starts to grow. It starts to become a joy, right? That's the way this is supposed to work. We're less oblivious to things going on around us. Jesus working in a young person's life, kids in the room, might be as ordinary as you noticing the kitchen doesn't clean itself. Your clothes don't fold themselves, right? And you start to ask a question that will blow your parents' mind. What can I do to help? Right? They'll they'll look at you like you have two heads, your parents, they'll just kind of do what dogs do when you make a strange noise. They kind of just turn their head. That's what your parents will do when you say, what can I do to help? And be like, what? What, what does that even mean? Right? Kids, write that word down. Write those words down. Tape that to your dresser. What can I do to help? That's you becoming more like Jesus. He works by his spirit in ordinary ways. Not only that, Becoming more like Jesus, getting around Jesus means we begin to process our suffering in a new way. Look what Paul says. Paul suffered intensely, and yet look at what he says in 2 Corinthians 4. Therefore, we do not give up. Even though our outer person is being destroyed, our inner person is being renewed day by day. For our momentary, I love that word, momentary, Light affliction is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. This is in your notes. The the assessment of our life needs to take eternity into account. And you can fill that next one in as well while we're here. The stale fruit of the prosperity gospel is its hearers don't yearn for the new creation. 
Look, we, we take eternity into account. When we're factoring up our joys versus our sorrows, we're, we're putting that on the long scale of eternity. And things weigh differently when you put it on that scale, right? The most basic exercise for people of faith is we're forward-looking people, looking to a city whose builder and designer is God. Suffering Christian, hear me, your life isn't off the rails. Jesus told us it would be hard. He told us in this world, you will have tribulation, Christians have been fortifying themselves in this truth for generations that we will suffer a little while here and then we'll rejoice forever. That's called the blessed hope and it's been the song in the heart of believers for centuries and centuries and centuries. Keep eternity in view. It's coming. It's next on the calendar. He returns. Weeping may endure for the night but joy comes in the morning. Friend, this life is a vapor. It is trucking by. The earliest conversation I think I remember in my whole life is a conversation I had with my mom uh, in the house I was born in. And I asked her, uh, when are we moving into the new house? And the reason I remember this is it was her answer was so exciting to me because we were going to a new house. And I remember on the way home from work with dad during the summers, we'd stop and look. They were building the house on Elmwood Parkway. And we'd just see, okay, there's the slab. Go back the next week, okay, there's the walls are going up and you see wood and all that stuff and the trusses. And, and so I was getting so excited. I said, Mom, when are we going to be in the new house? And she said, before Christmas. I remember that so well, before Christmas. And we did. We moved in just like she promised. We moved in before Christmas, 1980. Almost 40 years ago. And that conversation happened yesterday. It won't be long, and we will meet God. And if I could look at every person in this room, I would ask you, are you ready? I see that as the most sobering responsibility that I have as your pastor called to proclaim God's word to you, to ready you for your meeting with God. To clarify, this is what Christianity is. This is what Christianity isn't. So that nobody gets to that moment and stands before Jesus Christ having been misled by what it means to follow Christ. Having been misled to think that there's any other way to stand before him and make it through and be accepted by a holy God into his holy heaven apart from faith in Jesus Christ alone. What he's done in his dying on the cross, taking our sins away, bearing God's judgment against my sin, rising again from the dead, you believe that, that's the good news of the gospel. That's the central story of the Bible. You turn from your sin, you turn from trusting in yourself, and you run to this one Savior who's been provided for you, and your eternal future opens up. Joy at God's right hand forevermore, forgiveness of all your sins. That's the good news. This leads to one final act in this passage. Confrontation, imitation, finally motivation. Motivation. 
So faith in Jesus, we've already established, doesn't exempt us from suffering. But there is a key difference between the suffering of Jesus and our suffering. Your suffering doesn't pay a ransom. A ransom is a price that you pay to free someone from slavery. Your life, your suffering, your service to God pays nothing. It's not quid pro quo. You know, he pays a little, then you pay a little. He pays some, you know, he pays kind of the front part, and then you, you pay him back. In your notes, this, this truth, Christianity is not one more moral improvement program. The essence of the Christian faith is not WWJD. It's not what would Jesus do and then you doing it. The essence of the Christian faith is what has Jesus done. Friend, that's where the inside-out change and transformation happens. What is the Old Testament? The Old Testament is, is thundering commands all throughout, the thundering of commands for centuries. And how many people did it change? Goose egg. Not one person was changed by the thundering of the commands of Mount Sinai. We're not changed by command. We're changed by love. That's the real story. That's, how, that's where the sauce is. That's where the magic is, right? Our servanthood toward others in Christ's name and applying this text isn't a business transaction. You know, like Jesus loaned us money up front because we didn't have any at the time, right? And then, but now we have to pay him back moment by moment by serving others, we're paying him back. That's not the way this is. Our love to God, friends, is less like math and more like marriage. Love is awakened by the glory of the gospel. It's not calculus. It's poetry. But one thing that my, um, my wife raves about, and that is uh, good chocolate. She, she loves some good chocolate. There was a person who came to our, our door years ago in New Orleans, and they were selling chocolate that had scripture verses, references, scratched in the bottom of the candy bar. And my wife just cut to the chase and said, how does it taste? They're like, it has John 3.16. She's like, I don't care. Right? <laughs> I can read John 3.16. I don't need it etched into my chocolate. How's the chocolate taste? Right? She loves her some chocolate. And so I found our, on our way back from um, our time in Central Asia, we were in, in Amsterdam and I found out two things about Amsterdam while we were in the airport. One is they have apparently world-famous tulips. And the other thing is apparently they have world-famous chocolate. Especially milk chocolate, which is my wife's favorite chocolate. And so I found the place in the airport. And it said 1857. I'm like, this chocolate is aged. This, is, this was made in 1857, right? It's just, this is the world's most wondrous chocolate, right? And I never dreamed chocolate would cost as much as that box of chocolate costs, right? Her birthday is this week, so we'll find out if it was really as good as, as what it seemed like on the receipt. I, I love this quote, though, from Tim Keller. I've read it to you before. I'll probably read it to you several times again in coming years. When you fall deeply in love, you want to please the beloved. You don't wait for the person to ask you to do something for her. You eagerly research and learn every little thing that brings her pleasure. Then you get it for her. Even if it costs you money or great inconvenience, your wish is my command, you feel. And it doesn't feel oppressive at all. Remember what John said? His commands are not burdensome. Doesn't feel oppressive at all. From the outside, bemused friends may think 
She's leading him around by the nose, but from the inside, it feels like heaven. Jesus' love for us is the engine of the Christian life. We love him because he first loved us, and we obey out of our love for him. Everything's downstream of his love for us. That, you know, by the way, that's exactly what's happening in maybe the greatest hymn of all time. Isaac Watts, I think, is the greatest hymn writer of all time. And one of his magnum opus pieces was When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. You know what he's doing? He's basically saying in every verse of that hymn, his love changes us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the prince of glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. What is he saying? He's saying the death blow to pride isn't willpower, it's wonder. The expulsive power of good news, and he says all the way to the end, where the whole realm of nature mine, you could give me the earth. He said, that's a present far too small. Love so amazing. His eyes are up to the cross. Love so amazing, so divine. Demands my soul, my life, my all. Take the whole world. Give me Jesus. Triggered by what he sees. Paul says the same thing. He says, you want an explanation for the life that I live, the sacrifices that I make, the bruises on my back everywhere? The life that I now live, I live looking. I live by faith in the Son of God. Who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Translation, Paul's self-sacrificing love wasn't so premeditated, it was overflow. Jesus' love frees us to sacrificially love others. Jesus' love frees us to sacrificially love others. Brooke Hills, I'm, I'm pushing all my chips forward that that's where the change happens. I think that's the horse to back in the Christian life, right? I could hammer on you for 45 minutes every Sunday and nothing would change in the interior of your soul. Telling self-absorbed people they're self-absorbed doesn't make them love better. It's easy to stack weights. What sets us free? This is the question. What sets us free from self-obsession, we need to see something that can break the cycle, something so beautiful, so powerful, so compelling, it changes us and begins over time to continually change us. That's what Paul says in another place in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. If one died for all, notice where he's looking, then all died, and he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. So, Brook Hills, a couple things for us to take home. How do we cultivate a servant's heart? Just two application points I want to leave us with. Number one, get out on a limb. Get out on a limb. So, if there's a life option that you're dodging mainly because it will be difficult, Get out on a limb, right? You think about this in a number of different categories. Maybe it's, maybe it's missions. Maybe you're supposed to have a conversation with somebody on the global team. Maybe that conversation leads you somewhere else in the world. Maybe it leaves you here, active in mission, right here in our city. Don't not do it because you're afraid. 
of suffering or you're afraid of service. Think about marriage even, right? Maybe it's not for, it's certainly not for everyone. It wasn't for Jesus. It wasn't for Paul. They commended the rich single life, but, but even Jesus said singleness isn't for everyone either, right? Guys, if you don't have the gift of lifelong singleness and if there's no biblical reason for you to be in a holding pattern, it's time to ask somebody out for coffee, right? It has to start somewhere, Think, think about other categories. Think about foster care. Think about adoption. Maybe that's the journey, right? There, you, there's so many people that you could have conversations with. But don't be fearful. Don't hold back because you're afraid of suffering or afraid of service. Talk to somebody. Talk to Anita Butcher, um, who, who works with me on the second floor. She's an adoption foster care ninja in this church. She understands all, all of how, how it works, right? You could... You could throw a rock up into the air and you're going to hit somebody who's on the adoption journey in, in this church. Think about it. Talk about it. Start a conversation. What could it look like to take a next step? In other words, let me just put it this way. You're not going to avoid discomfort in this life. Let's just own that. It's not your path. So what are you afraid to do in his name that you were afraid to do a moment ago? What do you want to step forward toward and consider So that's the first thing. The second is this. Ditch grandeur. Get out on a limb and ditch grandeur. So, so many of the sacrifices that God calls us to aren't going to make people want to write books about us. <laughs> They're ordinary things. So I would encourage you, brothers and sisters, don't be above just doing the thing that's in front of you, the need that's in front of you for the glory of Christ. Stepping into that area of service. I'm so thankful for people who help us every week park our cars. People who greet us on the way in and do hospitality for us and welcome us here. People working these cameras every week. Right? Your, your heads are kind of panning around them. There they are. They're working these cameras every week. People in the, in the sound booth and technical backstage. Right? Pe- people pushing bye-bye buggies in this hall over here full of toddlers and babe, screaming babies. And they're pushing your babies down the hall. Took a trip, again, this trip to Central Asia to visit our church planners. And we, we brought along members who were going to help with childcare. And they just watched kids and babies all day long. And they played games all day long. And you sit with these people at night and you have dinner with them. And you're just realizing, not, not surprising at all, these are eminently gifted people. Talented people, smart, articulate, hardworking, driven people who flew to Central Asia to play foosball with a seven-year-old. That's awesome. They preached a better sermon on Matthew 20 than the one you just heard. That's where it's at. Everyday, ordinary acts of service and self-sacrifice and generosity that make Jesus look wonderful. Look, in a world addicted to power, and greatness, Jesus made servanthood the showstopper. He made it the darling. He made humility look stunning. The, Paul said, the love of Christ constrains me. The love of Christ compels me. You live a life compelled by commands, it may work for a season. You'll probably burn out or you'll, you'll become self-righteous. You'll have a spiritual ego as big as Texas, right? Those are the two possibilities, but compelled by love, oh, there's all kinds of possibilities, right? We, we give all, we risk all, we go where he calls us to go. We find the lowly place 
of service. And even there we find joy.